We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. And when we say God glorified, what we mean is that we exist for the purpose of seeing God receive praise, worship, honor, glory, credit, and fame. We believe that he is due. And so we want to spend our lives, our words, everything pointing back to Jesus. Right? It's why when you come here, we say our one desire is that when you leave here, that you'll marvel at Jesus more. that we chose the name Emmaus, the vision of our church is that we want to be a people who declare who Jesus is from all of the scriptures, that we talk about him, we proclaim him here in this pulpit, we do it in our kids ministry, through our songs, through our confessions, through the scriptures that we read, we do it with our neighbors and with our co-workers and with our children at home, that we are a people who declare who Jesus is and that as Jesus is being declared. Hearts are burning with the truth of who he is and eyes are being opened to believe it and there's faith being planted in the hearts of men and women. We want to see this transformation take place in people all across our city. That's what we're about. That's what we will spend ourselves on as long as God sees fit to leave a church called Emmaus in existence. Please join me in Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. That's Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. And one more time, that's Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Good morning. Hey, if we haven't met yet, my name is Sam. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I'm happy to be here with you guys, happy to be worshiping with you, and I have one uh, quick announcement before we jump into today's content, and that is our membership weekend that's coming up February 8th and 9th. It's a Friday evening and a Saturday morning. If you've been coming to Emmaus for a while and you're interested in pursuing membership, or even if you're interested in finding out more about membership, uh, how we do membership here, that's a great first step to to, uh, to to take. So sign up for that. You can find um, links to that through social media and on our main website, EmmausKC.com. Um, but there are other announcements as well that I literally don't have time to get to because I want every single second I can have uh, for, for today's sermon. So um, with that said, I'd like to pray. So would you guys join me in prayer? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens 
laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Our Father in heaven, your name is holy. And we pray that it would be revered as such in our midst this morning. Please keep us from succumbing to the temptations this topic is teeming with, for they are legion. Fill us with your spirit now to illumine our minds and animate our wills to receive and obey your instruction. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So every week that I stand behind this pulpit, I feel tiny. I feel microscopic, uh, set up next to the weight of preaching the word of God for you, to stand as a herald and an ambassador and to say, thus says the Lord. It's a, it's a massive responsibility. And you need to know that none of us who stand behind this pulpit take that lightly. But there are some weeks that the intensity of the task is felt more viscerally than others. And this is one of those weeks. Uh, we're, we're in the middle of a sermon series here at Emmaus called Redeeming All Realms, where we're looking at specific areas and asking the question, what does the gospel have to say about this particular topic? And today's sermon is on race, racial harmony, race relations, racial reconciliation, all of it, all of that non-controversial stuff. Last week's sermon was hard for me to preach and hard for many of you to hear, I said, because the subject matter touched raw and open wounds for many of you. Well, today's sermon will be hard for me to preach and hard for many of you to hear, but for very different reasons. Uh, the, the difficulty of today's sermon will be in light of the fact that this subject matter is so inflammatory. People already have their fists up. Passions flare, and people instinctively brace themselves for self-defense at the mere mention of race or racism. People are already upset about the things that I'm not going to say and the things that I'm going to say. Therefore, some of you will be offended. I know that. That's not lost on me. And the one thing I want you to hear from the very beginning is this. I love you. I am for you. And I desperately long for unity. My heart for you is one of loving instruction and pastoral affection. So just know that none of the, the things that I'm going to say that will offend some of you are said for the sake of being contentious. The very opposite, in fact. We want to be united around the truth. 
So before I begin, I'd like to give you a few few preliminary remarks. These are the ground rules. First, I admonish you now to practice Christian charity, humility, and teachability as we move forward. There are few things condemned in the New Testament more than a contentious spirit that disrupts the unity of the church of Jesus Christ. So let this posture of humility be yours as we move forward. Now, as you hear this sermon, and in the weeks and days to come, as you talk about it in your community groups and what have you. Second, I admonish you to be careful and thoughtful. This topic and the handling of it cannot be reduced to a meme or a snarky soundbite from your favorite public intellectual. And we know that social media doesn't have any of those. It's all too easy to wed subjects, people, and entire systems of thought, or subjects and people and entire topics to systems of thought and then dismiss those systems of thought outright. But that's lazy. So be thoughtful and careful respectful and charitable. Charitable. In fact, you should look at this week's sermon as an extension from last week's sermon on the dignity of human beings made in the image of God. Out of reverence for him, we need to be responsible with how we proceed. Third and lastly, I want to warn you that our time today will be spent all over the scriptures. This is not typical for us to do, even in topical series like this. Okay, so topical series are already atypical for us, but even less typical is for me to do what I'm going to do today and bounce all around the passage, all around the scriptures. But I think it's important for us to build a theological foundation from the whole Bible before we speak about this topic. In fact, the deeper the foundation, the better. Because of how emotionally volatile this subject matter is, we are far too often pressured to make statements about specifics before we really understand the underlying principles. So we will be served tremendously if we can build a theological foundation first so that we can have something to actually say as we enter into this conversation. Rather than co-signing concepts and ways of thinking from unbelievers, we need to go to the scriptures first so that our minds can be shaped there. So with that said, allow me to build out for you a biblical theology of ethnos. In other words, I'd like to tell you the Bible's story of race. The Bible's story of race. We begin in first chapter of Genesis where we read, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Right here in the very beginning, we see God's intention for a multiplicity and diversity of image bearers to reflect his glory on earth. He didn't just create one gender, he created two. We have male and female. We also see a diversity in numbers as well, a numeric diversity. It's not that God intends for his glory to be showcased by one man and one woman on planet Earth. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And I also want you to notice something that I think is implicit right here. 
the intended consequence of Adam and Eve's created vocation. Adam and Eve, think about this, Adam and Eve could not be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it without a diversity of colors and ethnic groups developing as a result. That is an intended consequence of their vocation. In fact, we know this to be true when we fast forward to Genesis chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel, when you have the entire human race refusing God's command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And so God comes and he creates confusion among them, so they're forced to disperse, and what you have as a result is a multiplicity and diversity of colors and peoples and languages. This is a happy and good thing. Before Adam sins, we see a glimpse of God's intention for his creation. It's an earth filled with a diverse display of his glory and multi-ethnic image-reflecting humans worshiping God and ruling the earth in peace. Just as a, a real quick aside, this one's for free. This is why colorblind rhetoric is really unhelpful and unbiblical. So when you say, I don't see color, I don't see your color, I just see race. First, first of all, not only are you not telling the truth, but it's also not giving full credence to what God intends. God never intended for us to be ignorant of one another's differences. God created those differences on purpose. They, they show his artistry, his magnificent artistry. So when you're sitting in the restaurant with your kid and you see the, the wheels spinning in their head as they're looking at you and the person sitting next to you and like you've been here before, right? Where you see, you, you see they're conjuring up a question that's going to embarrass you and they ask you, why does this person look different than you? Don't get embarrassed without skipping a beat. Just say, because God is a magnificent artist who's created so many different people to look so differently. Isn't that amazing that God's creativity is put on massive display by not making us colorblind? Now, we all know that something between, somewhere between Genesis 1 and now, something has gone terribly wrong because our earth, although it is filled with a diverse display of uh, image bearers, a diverse display of God's glory in, in multi-ethnic image-reflecting humans, our earth is still not full of worshipers of God who are at peace with him and at peace with one another and who practice responsible rulership over the rest of creation. There is enmity in just about every conceivable area. There is lack of peace between man and God. There is lack of peace between men and women. There is lack of peace between man and the rest of creation. There's lack of peace between ethnic groups. And there's lack of peace among individuals. And all of this enmity and animosity can be traced back to the chapter of human history we read about in Genesis chapter 3. We call this chapter the fall. And this is where Adam standing as a representative of the entire human race, disobeys God's command, and he carries his posterity into slavery to sin and death. Sin and entropy and pain and death were brought into the world when Adam steered the ship of humanity against the route and the trajectory that God had set for humans. Without peace with God, there can be no real peace at any other level, 
At the root of racism, therefore, is the root of every other sin, idolatry of self, to turn our worshipful gaze from God inward. And that fractured, that fracture of this broken relationship between God and man spreads over into every other area. Now, at the close of this chapter of human history, God issues a promise. We find this promise in Genesis 3.15. This promise is what theologians call the proto-evangelium, which just means the first gospel. Proto meaning first evangelium, gospel. It's the first gospel. And it's a promise that God will mend the fractured relationship between God and man and the rest of creation. A promise that all of the enmity on earth will come down to a battle a final battle that will end with a clear victor. We read these words that God utters to Satan in Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This cryptic, subtle promise is a promise that God will deal with the problem of sin. And since racism is fundamentally a sin problem, any hope we have of dealing with it, of dealing with racism for good, is found here in this promise, the promise of the bruised heel of the woman's seed, crushing the serpent's head. Now, at this point, the Bible's story of ethnicity begins to be told through the narrative of one particular people group. So we're starting to zoom in now into one particular people group. That's Abraham and his descendants who had become the nation of Israel. So God comes to Abraham in Genesis 12, and he promises to make him a great nation and to bless him and make his name great so that he will be a blessing. He promises to bless those who bless him and to curse those that dishonor him. And then he tells Abraham that, quote, in him all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then in Genesis 15 and 17, this promise is rounded out. So it's, it's, it's not just given to Abraham specifically, but it's given to Abraham and to his offspring. And the rest of the Bible is basically a slow zoom to find out who this offspring is. So we have this, this seed, this promised seed that's gonna crush the serpent's head we, we find out that it's going to come from woman. And then we learn that it's going to come from Abraham. And then we learn that he'll come from Abraham's son, Isaac. And then from Isaac's son, Jacob. And then from the line of Jacob's son, Judah. And then from the line of one of Judah's descendants, David. He's going to be a son of David. And then Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, tells us this whole story in a nutshell, that the buck stops at Jesus. He's the seed. He's the promised offspring of Abraham. Listen to what Paul says about Jesus in relation to Abraham and this promise. Paul says this in Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Paul says that all of our hopes for restoring the fractured peace between man and God and every other broken relationship beyond hang 
on this great promised seed, Jesus Christ, the, the serpent crusher. So this blessing of peace to the nations, this blessing of peace that God promises to Abraham that's going to extend to the nations is going to come through Jesus. And the way that God blesses the nations, therefore, is by bringing them, bringing the nations into the fold of Christ. That's how the nations will be blessed. They're going to be brought into the fold of Christ. This is exactly what Jesus has told us. In John chapter 10, verse 16, he says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. He's talking about non-Jewish or Gentile sheep. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. And then if we hit fast forward and go to the end, we get a glimpse of what this will look like in the end. What's it gonna look like when all the nations are blessed by being brought into the fold of Christ? We read this in Revelation 7, verses 9 through 10. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's where we're going. Real quick, this is another one that's just for free. Have you guys heard about John Chow, the missionary who went to the, the little island off the coast of India and was speared to death there? He wasn't crazy for going. He saw Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, and he knew that the sentinel people were going to be before the throne of the Lamb praising him, and he knew that the, the gospel had to be taken there. So he wasn't crazy. All right. End of the little side note there. That's where we're going. That's where we're going, brothers and sisters. That's what Jesus has accomplished. When he came in the flesh and shed his blood on the cross, he purchased a people for himself from every tribe and tongue and nation. This is why the Great Commission we read in Matthew 28, when Jesus tells us, to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. This is why that command is contingent upon the universal lordship of Jesus. All authority has been on earth, heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go. Jesus is saying, when I shed my blood on the cross, I purchased the people for myself from every tribe and tongue and nation. They're all mine. So go and announce it to them. Go and announce this good news to them. And when God restores peace with man in Christ, he simultaneously restores man's peace with man. This is the source of all lasting racial reconciliation. Reconciliation with God through Christ. He is the foundation of our peace with one another. And any other substitute is destined to be too shoddy and too shifty. We read about how God restores peace in Ephesians 2. Go ahead and turn there. If you're still in Philippians 2, it's just a couple of passages to your left. Ephesians 2. I want us to look at this passage together. This is, this is how it's done. This is how Jesus restores peace with man. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11. This is what Paul says. 
Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, that is, the Jews, the uncircumcision was something of a racial slur. Remember that you Gentiles were at that time, that is, before God saved them by grace, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, Jesus, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man, the Christian, in place of the two, the Jew and the Gentile, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who are near, the Jews. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Listen, if there were ever a justifiable or understandable segregation of ethnic groups, it was the separation between the Jew and the Gentile. If there were ever a separation, that was one that would have made sense, right? The Jews could always say, we have the covenant and the promises. We have the law and the commandments. We are on superior footing. They could always say that mistakenly, obviously, because Genesis 12 is a promise that the nations will be blessed. But we can understand how they would come to that conclusion, right? But when Jesus came and fulfilled the law, when he came and fulfilled everything, the commands and the sacrifices and the Old Testament, uh, Old, Covenant, Old Testament covenants were pointing to, when he came and fulfilled all of these things that the Jews were using in order to make themselves superior to the Gentiles, when he came and actually fulfilled all of those things, he broke down the dividing wall of hostility. He came and he took all of the blessings that were exclusively offered to Israel, safe within its ethnocentric walls, and with his own body, he broke down, he bulldozed that wall of hostility, and he made those blessings accessible to the nations. That was the only segregation of ethnic groups that would have kind of made sense, and now it's been undermined. There is no more. There is no more a justifiable segregation of ethnic groups. This is what Paul goes on to say in verse 19. Still there, Ephesians 2, verse 19, he says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ himself, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Notice the unity that Paul is describing here. The word picture is the picture of a building, a sturdy building, a sturdy, strong building made with seemingly irreconcilable material. You have Jewish material and Gentile material, and the two things are not supposed to mix, and yet... 
Jesus builds a strong, sturdy building with these seemingly irreconcilable materials. God has erected a unified building called the church. And this this unity that Paul is advocating for here is a far cry from the kind of unity that our world typically advocates for. It's a vague sense of togetherness where we just try as hard as we can not to offend each other. It's a, it's a unity that's a mile wide and an inch deep. Not so with this kind of unity. This kind of unity has a foundation. It's the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. And Jesus Christ himself is the primary weight-bearing cornerstone. The whole thing hangs on him. This is your new identity, Christian. You are one in Christ, and therefore you are one with everyone else who is one in Christ. It doesn't matter what your differences were before, what, what, the, what the things that you had against other people were before. Once you're in Christ, you're one with that person. You're one with that brother and that sister. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. This is what Paul says in Galatians There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Listen to what this is not saying. This is not saying that all of the physical, linguistic, cultural, gender distinctions are obliterated in Christ. That passage is not saying that. Otherwise, Paul would be, Uh, in direct contradiction to what we just read in Revelation 7, where we have different tribes, different tongues, different languages, all standing before the throne of the Lamb, worshiping in their differences. So we're not saying that that the distinctions among people are obliterated. That's actually part of God's plan, is to redeem those distinctions. Once, Once people are saved uh, saved by, by Christ and, and uh, sin is no more and we have our new heavens and our new earth, what you don't have is a blank slate of people. You still have differences, cultural, linguistic, colorful differences. So it doesn't mean that these things are obliterated. That would go against what we just read in Revelation 7. Rather, it means that in relation to access belonging, and redemption, there are no gradations based on differences. In terms of access and belonging, the foot of the cross is level. There is no privilege to be found in age, race, gender, social class, or anything else in the kingdom of heaven. No one has a leg up when it comes to peace with God. We're all either equally dead in Adam or alive in Christ. Now, where does this leave us today? We sit here in this time between times. We're situated right here between Ephesians 2 and Revelation 7. The dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. And Christ has shed his blood to purchase the people for himself from every tribe and tongue and nation. They are his. He's bought them. And he's in the process of drawing them to himself now. So we sit here in this place of tension with the cross at our backs pushing us forward to our future, the throne of the lamb before us pulling us into our future. 
Now, I stress this word tension because although that future of ours is as sure as the empty tomb, that future of harmonious, multi-ethnic worshipers at the the throne of, of the Lamb, that future is as sure as the empty tomb is. However, the journey there is fraught with difficulty. It is possible. It is possible for our conduct now to be inconsistent with what our future conduct will be then. It is possible for us to walk in a manner that is not in step with the gospel. None of us are beyond that possibility. The apostle Peter wasn't beyond that kind of hypocrisy, which is why Paul himself had to confront him to his face about his racist conduct. This is the apostle Peter, after he's been saved and filled with the Holy Spirit, acting like a racist. And Paul has to confront him to his face. If men such as the apostle, you can read about that in Galatians 2. If men such as the apostle Peter were not beyond the, the possibility of such hypocrisy, we dare not presume to be. We dare not presume to be beyond this kind of hypocrisy. So, what are we to do? What are we supposed to do as we sit here in this time between times? How are we supposed to treat each other? We are to Philippians 2, 1 through 4 each other. That's what we're to do. That's what the expectation is. Philippians 2, 1 through 4. So go ahead and turn back there if, you've, if you haven't yet. This is where we're going to be camped out for the rest of our time this morning. Philippians chapter 2. Starting in verse 1, Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to the interests of others, but also to, not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. I want us to take these words from Philippians 2, these universal, holistic Christian, this expectation for Christian living, I want us to take these words and apply them directly to this topic of racial harmony. I have four pastoral charges with respect to this passage, and I'll just tell you right now, the, the majority of the time will be spent on the, this first pastoral charge, which is to majority or white Christians. That's not because I think that white Christians are more inclined to racist inclinations than others. And it's not because I don't think that there are other race relations, uh, racial tensions in our world other than the racial tensions that exist between um, white, white Americans and you know, minority Americans. That's not why I'm making this distinction. I am weighting the uh, application of this sermon to reflect not only the country that I live in, but the people in our own congregation. So when I look at, at you, what would be the, the most, what would make sense the most for me to, to weight my, the application of my sermon? Most of you guys are white. And so that is why the, the application has been distributed the way that it has. So don't read anything else 
in, into that other than what I'm saying right now. Charge number one, this one is to white Christians, minority or majority Christians. Your charge is to empathize with your minority brothers and sisters. This can take the form of several commitments. For one thing, it looks like giving your minority brothers and sisters the benefit of the doubt when they insist upon kinds of inequality that are not immediately apparent to you. Walk into this conversation with the humility of granting that you don't know everything there is to know about the minority experience in America and let voices from minority groups, especially Christian voices, let them point out potential blind spots before you immediately rush to defend yourself, consider the possibility that they see from their vantage point something that you don't see from yours. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Now I say give your brothers and sisters the benefit of the doubt because... While I can't presume to speak universally about every individual experience in the black community, for example, I do know that a common experience, a common experience is fatigue and exhaustion because of the constant need to justify frustrations with things that aren't immediately apparent to the experience of most white Americans. Things like systemic and institutional racism, subtle comments or ways of thinking that perpetuate America's racialization. A common experience is exhaustion, the double exhaustion of being mistreated in the world and then mistrusted among fellow Christians. So all that to say, you begin to empathize with your minority brothers and sisters when you drop your defenses, you give them the benefit of the doubt, and you count them as more significant than yourselves by entering into the conversation with humility. Second, taking things a step further, empathizing with your minority brothers and sisters means making their problems your problems. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, Paul says, but also to the interests of others. This means, for example, when you hear the voice of the black community cry out over problems like mass incarceration or the disparity of educational opportunity, or lack of representation in school curriculum. The fact that most of our curriculums have a Black History Month, and yet most of us still know nothing about black history in America. So when you hear the, the, the cry of the black community about those different things, you don't turn a deaf ear to those cries simply because they don't immediately affect you. Because they're affecting a part of the body. You make their problems your problems, but also to the interests of others, Paul says. Can I just tell you, brothers and sisters, this, this was a massively convicting aspect of this sermon to me as I was preparing. The temptation, the temptation to check out of this conversation is strong. It is a strong temptation to just check out because of how volatile and how loud and how angry everybody seems to be. The temptation is strong to just say, forget it. I do not want to think about this topic. I don't want to talk about this topic. I just don't want to think about it anymore. But that is not loving my neighbor. 
especially my neighbors that don't have the option to check out of the conversation because it is their daily reality. That is not loving to our neighbors. Now, an important, an important step to take in this direction is putting an end to false dichotomies. This is one really important false dichotomy. The dichotomy between personal responsibility and social inequality. This is the dichotomy between personal sins and national sins, personal racism and institutional racism. We do not have to choose between those two things. Like, if we think about how the, the geographical landscape of our country is laid out and you have ghettos in our city that were created by a whole bunch of racially motivated things one after another, whether it's the, uh, the Great Migration, when six million African Americans fled their lives, fled for their lives from the South, and then settled down in these communities where then the, the banks and you know, housing departments and that sort of thing actually incentivized for white flight, for white, for white Americans to leave those areas. And then they redlined those areas so that they were literally trapped there. Okay, and then a ghetto comes out of there. That, that is a hotbed for crime. Now, when I'm looking at that situation, I don't have to choose between being angry and hating the society's sin of creating an environment that's conducive to a whole bunch of individual sins and hating the individual sins. You don't have to choose between those two things. You can call societal systemic racism what it is, and it doesn't take at all away from the individual responsibility of sinners within those communities. Now, I recognize that what I just said, that that two minutes that wasn't in my manuscript, as you could probably tell, I recognize that when I I just went on that two-minute little rant, there may have been some white noise for, for many of you, because many of you may reject the concept of moral culpability on the societal level outright. You say the problem is the sin of individuals. Maybe it's the sin of individual leaders, but the problem is always the, the, the sin of individuals. You can't, make, you can't hold a society culpable for cultural sins. And if that's you, I wonder if you would say the same thing about the issue of abortion. Is our society not guilty of upward of 63 million babies murdered in just a handful of decades. Our country tolerates child sacrifice. Is that not a societal sin? That's a societal sin. We can own that. Now, if we can own that societal institutional sin, why can we not do the same thing for racial institutional injustice? Now, don't hear me say that the answer I'm prescribing is something as petty as white guilt. Feel bad for yourself. Feel feel bad by virtue of being the color that you are. That's stupid. And it's it's not helping anything other than making yourself feel better, okay? That's not what I'm advocating for. I also don't presume to prescribe exactly what to do on the societal level to address institutional injustice. Those are conversations that need to be had outside of the pulpit. But what I can and must say, what we can and must do is grieve the brokenness of our world. Our country has deep scars from racial sin that still affect many people. 
and grieving this fact, weeping with those who weep, hating the persistent effects of sin, is in and of itself a step worth taking. Now, lastly, this is the the last false dichotomy that I want to talk about, which this, this one makes me grumpy. This is a false dichotomy that really grinds my gears. It's the false dichotomy that says we have to choose between preaching the gospel or talking about justice. And listen, this is simply another iteration of the false dichotomy that says we can either preach the indicative of the gospel, what is true because of the gospel, or the imperative of the gospel, what we're supposed to do in light of the gospel. That's a false dichotomy. That's a false choice. That's like saying about the brother who's caught in the throes of pornography. That's like saying, either tell that brother of the forgiveness given in Christ, or tell him to stop looking at porn by the power of the Spirit. I want to say both of those things to that brother. It's like saying either preach about conversion or preach for discipleship. But we're not forsaking one by addressing the other. Talking about the importance of racial reconciliation in light of the gospel is not the same thing as talking about racial reconciliation instead of the gospel. If you're doing one right, you're doing both. It is possible to do this, okay? It's possible to to just forsake preaching the gospel and talk about only, you know, worldly, temporary, temporal issues. But preaching about temporal issues is not the same thing as automatically de facto rejecting the gospel. So beware of such false dichotomies. Charge number two, this one is to the minority brothers and sisters in Christ, the minority Christians who are here. This is your charge. Bear with your brothers and sisters in long-suffering particularly your white brothers and sisters here. Now, I say this because I know that many of you have already given up preferences in becoming members here, especially if you've come from church traditions that function very differently than we do here at Emmaus. Many of the members here, you need to know, minority brothers and sisters, many of the members here don't even recognize the fact that you have given up preferences. Like the fact that Jake is the only person that talks back to me when I preach (laughs) there are many brothers and sisters here that don't even know that that's not, you know, that that is in and of itself uncommon. So many of you have given up preferences by becoming members here to begin with. I also know that there may be a thousand little sacrifices that you make in order to stay here, including the exhaustion that I just described a moment ago of having to justify your experience to your brothers and sisters here. Or maybe you simply don't even talk about those things because it's not worth the energy. Maybe that's your experience, maybe it's not. In either case, my charge for you comes from the same passage. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Look to the interests of others because we need you here, brothers and sisters. Can I just tell you very frankly, the all-white pastoral staff needs you here. Not simply in a sense that we long to look diverse and so your presence automatically wins us points. And not in a patronizing paternalistic sense where you're patted on the head and 
welcomed into our church. We need you here because we are not satisfied with the Christianity that is out of step with the gospel. And many, many, many white evangelical churches in our country are out of step with the gospel and they don't even know it. We don't want that here. So we need you here. We need you here to to help us be a a church, an actual church that reflects Revelation 7, 9 through 10. We need you here because you belong to this church. You belong to this church. This isn't a white church that you happen to join. This is your church. This is your church. So hear me as a representative of your pastors say to you now, we see you and we love you. Charge number three, this one is to all the Christians. Confess that Jesus is Lord. Worship him. Worship Jesus. Charge number three is to worship Jesus. Confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what we will be doing together forever. So we might as well get used to it now. He is our rally cry. He is our peace. He is where our identity rests. If we try to attain any kind of unity and peace that can be explained apart from the unifying presence of the Holy Spirit to bind us to our Lord Jesus Christ, it's not a Christian unity. Any unity that can be described apart from that supernatural work is not a Christian unity. And therefore, it cannot last forever. It's destined to be temporary. Peace with Christ is the only peace that will last. So any strategy we adopt moving forward, particularly in this conversation, any strategy we adopt moving forward must have this at its center, the unifying praise of Jesus Christ. The unifying praise of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit to the praise and honor of our Father. That future of many tribes and tongues and nations worshiping before the throne of the Lamb is our future. It's got our names written on it, and it is pulling us towards itself. So let us fix our eyes on Jesus and head there happily. Let's do it by singing, like by belting as loud as we possibly can in this last song when John comes up and leads us. Charge number four. This one is to the non-Christian all non-Christians who happen to be here this morning. Your charge, come to Jesus by faith and be reconciled to God. You live in a world that hungers for peace. You feel it. You feel it by virtue of being in this world. You live in a world that hungers for peace, but your deepest need for peace is your need for peace with God. Our world's hostility on every level is downstream from its enmity with God. And apart from Christ, you have no peace with God and therefore have no ultimate hope for true peace on any other level. Now listen, I wanna, I wanna say this to you non-Christian, especially in light of this kind of sermon. I know that the historical testimony of Christianity has been a mixed bag with Christians justifying racism with perverted forms of Christianity. Actual Christians doing this. I'm not saying so-called Christians. Real Christians have done this. Some of my heroes have done this. So I know that this topic is a mixed bag when it comes to the historical testimony of Christianity. 
But I also want you to think about how the pursuit of racial peace has fared for unbelieving systems as well. It hasn't done much better. Which means if history has taught us anything, it is that lasting peace and unity among different peoples, however those differences are made, lasting peace is impossible as long as the presence of sin exists on this planet. The problem will persist as long as sin does. Though this doesn't mean that we should despair of our efforts to see peace and justice realized on this planet, simply put our heads in the sand and wait for Jesus to come back. We should not be doing that. That's not what I'm saying. Although it doesn't mean that, it does nevertheless compel us to look for deeper and longer lasting solutions to the problem. If the problem is as deep as sin, so must the solution be. And hear me when I say this, non-Christian, there is only one antidote to the problem of the poison of sin, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. The problem is sin, and not just sin out there, it's your sin, it's your heart. Your heart is contributing to make this world as wretched as it is. You don't need to be saved from racists out there, you need to be saved from your own sinful heart that has racism lying in its, in its crevices, just like the rest of us. So come to Jesus. He fits that bill. He is offered to you now. Won't you take him? Let him take out the stony, sinful, depraved heart and replace it with a soft one that actually functions properly, that lets you see other people made in the image of God and value them accordingly. He offers you his life of righteousness to replace your life of treachery against God. He offers you his death as the satisfaction of God's wrath that you deserve. He offers you his spirit to animate your heart and rearrange your desires. He offers you, in sum, peace with God. Now, we will close now with our time of communion, just like every week. And what a glorious opportunity we have to practice for heaven. We are practicing for heaven. This bread and this cup are a foreshadowing of the great supper of the lamb that we will enjoy together in glory. In other words, when we take this meal, we anticipate the song that we will sing together. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. So we're going to leave this passage up. We're going to leave this passage up as we partake of the Lord's Supper as a, as a visual written reminder of what our physical act of worship anticipates. And if you're not a believer, as always, we would ask that you would please not take this meal. You need to know that we Christians don't take this meal in order to rack up spiritual points. That's not what we're doing. It is instead a visible emblem of the gospel message that we have banked our lives on. So if you don't cling to Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, as your only hope for this glorious future, this means this meal is not for you to consume, but it is for you to observe. And as you do, just know, as you, as you watch us, as you watch us take this meal in anticipation to our glorious future that is sure, just know you can get in on this future.
You, you can get in on this. Ask any one of us who partakes of this meal what it means to be a Christian, and we would love to tell you how. I'm gonna pray and then ask for the believers here to come down to my left. You'll take from the bread and the cup and return to your seat along my right. There is a gluten-free crackers for those of you who are allergic to gluten as well. Pray with me. Oh, holy triune God, harmonious three in one, we long for the day when faith turns to sight and sin is no more. We long for the day when we can worship at the throne of the Lamb without the complications of generational sins. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Even now, may we be convicted by your Spirit to walk in a manner that is in step with your gospel. Would you take these words of mine and removing anything unbecoming of your word from the minds of your people and press on our minds instead the encouragement in Christ, the comfort of love, participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy. Give us the same mind, the same love, and full accord and one mind. We ask for all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. I love you guys. Come and take. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.